listening to Living on the Edge, a weekly news podcast with a focus on edge, cloud, and mobile, featuring thoughts and analysis of these issues by tech industry veteran, the CEO of Mobile Edge X, Jason Hoffman, and by me, I'm your co-host, Dan Benjamin. If you'd like to read the notes and see the links associated with this episode, just go to livingontheedge.show. You'll find everything about this and all of our episodes right there. And while you're there, if you have thoughts, feedback, or comments, just click on the contact link and share them with us. We appreciate it. Hey, Jason, how you doing today? Doing well, Dan. How are you? I'm pretty good. There's a lot of cool uh, news here that I'm looking at right here on the screen, on the big screen. I feel like there's so much of it that we could just uh, we could just dive in and uh, and just start uh, talking about all this stuff because there's a lot here. Sounds fun. So KT has become the first South Korean telco to launch 5G standalone service, and <laughs> you know that seems like a big deal, right? I mean, that's a nice thing. Uh, well, uh, I mean, what's the difference between standalone and what's the opposite of standalone, Dan? Well, I guess before they had offered 5G non-standalone services, which they're calling NSA, um, where they had 4G LTE and 5G networks all mixed together. And now they're saying that if they have 5G SA over 5G NSA, it's going to reduce latency. It'll reduce power consumption because the phones won't be, I guess, what, switching back and forth constantly. Okay. I mean, is that is? <laughs> it seems it seems like a nice thing. I mean, eventually we're gonna switch to that, right? I mean, how long do we have to play the you know the Microsoft Windows game of supporting all of the old tech? At some point, they have to say no, no more. We're switching. We're we're making this move, right? Is this the? Are they just being the first company to do this, or is there more to it? Uh, I mean, I think that. Uh, you know, the idea that somehow um, you're making some either or selection between not standalone or standalone yeah. is um, a bit of a false dichotomy. It's really just sort of a matter of time. And so for everybody, what this generally means when somebody says not standalone, it means that they're essentially introducing 5G speeds uh, and some other core capabilities um, and you start using what you would think of as 5G spectrum uh, in that, um, but you're still using uh, parts of LTE that you have. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, you know, you're able to do video streaming and AR, VR, and can get sort of 5G-enabled devices inside of it, but... Um, you haven't sort of done the full migration. Um, now that makes a lot of sense for people to do um, because, you know, when you go into a standalone 5G architecture, it's a bigger transformation in many ways. I mean, you know, largely because um, really sort of <clears throat> deploying standalone 5G um, involves building a lot of a lot more sites, you know, because at the end of the day, these things have base stations and other things sitting around. Yeah, and it's building of sites. It's pretty time consuming and costly. Um, and uh, you know, but um, you know, I, you know, I, I wouldn't. I mean, like, if you sort of look and you say, like, you know, and we'll take South Korea for example. South Korea has talked a lot as you know the sort of leading place where these things are done very quickly and so on, like that. Uh, you know, it's not surprising that. 
um, Korea Telecom, um, literally uh, the you know the formerly government owned part uh, telco of that you know has interesting sites in Korea and that type of thing to go and do these types of rollouts. But people forget that you know South Korea itself is about you know ninety to hundred thousand square kilometers. I mean it's roughly about one one third to one quarter of the size of California. Right. The entire country isn't that big. Yeah. So, you know, if you want to be generous, it's basically Bakersfield down in San Diego, you know, from like a size perspective, it's a couple of milliseconds in latency and that type of thing. Right. Um, and, um, even though it's mountainous, it's pretty much a straight, what you'd call a straight shoot. Yeah. It literally just goes you know, straight, straight down that peninsula. Right. And, um, uh, so, you know, going and doing things like, well, let's rip out 2G and put in 3G. Let's rip out 4G and put in 5G. Let's sort of do these kinds of things. Uh, you know, it's a limited geography. It's it's relatively smaller. It has uh, a great density to it, too. I mean, you figure there's California's got, I don't know, 35, 40 million people on it, but I think Korea's got 50, 55 million people in it. Um, you know, so it'd be like if you took the entire population of California, Oregon, Washington, and jammed it all into the bottom third of California and then rolled out mobile networks for them. Um, you know, so it's cool that they, they're doing it. I'm sure they're marketing it. Um, and they're able to allocate a few other things and get some efficiencies in there. But you know, a lot of the, a lot of the things like we've talked about in the, the past around 5g, a lot of it is just, um, the operators need to do a certain transformation. And if they can actually get to, more cloud native uh, type architectures and deployments, uh, you know, which a lot of the elements of standalone 5G and sort of beyond are, uh, you know, then that's a good thing. But I, I don't, you know, and, and I guess I guess the marketing folks try to, um, you know, try to Expand make some, yeah. yeah, some spin of it. But I don't think, um, you know, almost like being standalone or standalone is in the current state of things is almost a internal technical detail versus something that I think people will actually notice a pretty big, uh, significant difference in, you know, meanwhile, there's a couple uh, lawsuits. One is against SK telecom. Uh, and then there's another filed filed against all three of the big carriers over there. I don't know the other ones, uh, by over 500 consumers, which doesn't sound like a lot, but the, basically the claim is that the providers have exaggerated the performances of their 5G services. And I think perhaps this could be set up as uh, maybe perhaps some kind of defense against it saying, well, it's NSA, not standalone. So therefore, that's why it's slower. And this, this could be smoke and mirrors around that. No, no. I, I, I think people just... Whenever you do something and say something, people show up and sue you. So, <laughs> no, that's true. <laughs> the idea that, you know, they get, you get together 500 people and do a class action lawsuit against somebody. The fact they say something, I mean, you almost have that. That's almost like continual noise. I mean, I, I highly doubt the two are related connect each other at all. Yeah. Well, yeah, back, I mean, uh, I mean, I guess that, I guess that's uh, valid, right? No good deed goes unpunished you try to add 5g and say it's faster and then people say it's not faster it's horrible 
But are they pay? Are typically are customers paying more for five G, or is it is it included in the plans and the service? In Korea, people were paying more for it. Okay. Yeah, they were actually signing up for quote unquote five G. Right. So I can imagine if you had imagine if you had like you know hundred megabit per second connection, and now you just paid for a gigabit per second connection, and, and you're you only didn't getting get it. megabits per second. Yeah. Yeah. Do something. But valid. Yeah, that's valid. I mean, you know, but um, but you know, the challenge with the challenge with wireless stuff is that you know there's you know interference from buildings and all sorts of things like that. So who who sort of knows? Well, back here in the states, we've got some that's news. Standalone, good for them. Yeah, right. Yeah. I mean, it's the future. It's the way of the future. Sometimes I tell you, man, the stuff that makes the news in this industry cracks me up. Well, but. how about this news from Dish? Uh, Dish Network is going to be paying AT and T at least five billion over ten years for network access because there's now a feud happening between uh-huh. Dish and T-Mobile. What's the nature of this feud? Uh, you know, probably, um, you know, one, one rich guy wanting another rich guy to pay for his stuff, I guess (laughs) at the core of it. I mean, they're not suing each other, are they? Somebody suing anybody? Uh, well, Dish is in this early stages of building the 5G network. And in the meantime, they're reselling network capacity and they've been getting it from T-Mobile, but now they're fighting because T-Mobile is going to be shutting down its 3G CDMA network much sooner than they originally planned to. Good riddance, huh? Yeah, well, uh, but apparently that's bad for Dish. Dish is not unhappy. Yeah, but you got to admit, you're a little bit. I mean, you remember CDMA, right? Yes. I mean, were you a little surprised that it still exists? Yeah, I had. I didn't know until I was reading this that there was still a thing. Three G CDMA. Who's on that? What's What's on that? Uh, well, I, I think it came from uh, Boost Boost Mobile, but it's like the you know the inexpensive prepaid you mm-hmm. know device mm-hmm. that kind of. I mean, so um, you know the burner phones, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, you know, that, that kind of thing. Um, uh, that that's 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 what that is. I mean, when the uh, when T-Mobile picked up Sprint, they uh, um, made them split, you know, some things off, and Dish picked that up. And um, I, I, I mean, look, and I, I have I have zero interaction or involvement or anything, and and you know that the, the, those kinds of things, but generally. I don't know. I mean, if um, if all they're doing is talking about it in the press, then clearly something wasn't covered in a contract. Um, you know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, if uh, somebody violated a contract, then there's ways to deal with that. Um, and uh, um, complaining about it to journalists isn't that... <laughs> It just, yeah, it just isn't. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, um, I don't know. I mean, there's, uh, I mean, the dish guys, they're probably, I mean, I think they're supposed to be live with the network by what, 2023. Um, and, um, you know, but the good news is they were pretty clearly able to source what they needed from AT&T. Yeah. I mean, yeah. So, and I mean, I guess that's the risk for, a company like T-Mobile or even AT&T itself or something else is that there, there are always alternatives and that's a, that is a lot of money. Uh, even over a 10 year time period, that's a lot of money. Half a billion a year. I don't know. It doesn't. For dish, they won't feel that. They're going to feel that. 
I mean, it's it's a cost and a service that they're not they're not unprofitably providing the service on the True. other end. True. Um, I'm sure they'll be fine. I mean, you know, it's 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 one of these things where, um, um, you know, again, you know, the 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 Justice Department, you know, under the Trump administration, re- required T-Mobile to sell Dish the Boost mm-hmm. Mobile business, and they went and picked up other things and. And uh, I'm sure there were. Now that wasn't Dish was like forced to acquire Boost, right? Isn't that right? Like, is like there was a government condition? No, no, no. no, he would. I think it's the other way around. It's more like T-Mobile was forced to divest it to somebody. Uh huh. Um, and uh, Dish was that somebody that decided to step up and right do it. Um, I mean, I think Dish has been. Um sort of going around for quite a while with the idea of maybe becoming the fourth major carrier in the country and sort of go from there. But, uh, but no, I mean, you, you can't require somebody to buy somebody. You know what I mean? You can't require somebody who wants to, um, go through a, you know, an acquisition of some type to divest some of those assets in order for that to happen. Um, and uh, and then the whole question always is whether a company like that can be standalone, you know, just go off to somebody else who's in the business or not in the business or somebody right, who's right. in the business. And, uh, yeah, I mean, Boost Mobile could have been spun out and put as a standalone. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, it could have been, it could have done a number of things like that. But, um, but no, I mean, Dish acquired it because they chose to. Nobody made them do it. There's an article here on Axios that says um, the company Dish expected to have at least three years to transition its customers uh, from Boost prepaid, and T-Mobile's yep. arguing that it gave Dish more than six months' notice, which is all that it was required by the contract, and that it's Dish's oh. responsibility to transition customers to phones that are compatible with T-Mobile's network. And oh. Dish is like, nope, we're out of here. We're gone. We're done. We're done. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, but you right. You just sort of said it right there. Yeah. So, I mean, contract to contract, and uh, if you're sitting there and saying like, "Well, but now if we want to migrate people, they have to come into a store and get a new phone," uh, and they're going to expect the phone to be subsidized and the phone to do this and the phone to do that. Then, right. Oh, right. Yeah. So that makes sense. I I can see how that's irritating. Um, but you know what you do is when you do the contract, then. You sit around. I mean, they did the contract. So the contract said, oh, you get six months notice, you get six months notice. And if you were going to be upset about some charge or you thought that, you know, we'd be in the situation where you had to go and do this, then you go and you put a six-month thing plus, you know, a, a penalty for doing something in less than three years. Right? You know what I mean? So if you tell somebody, oh, you give me six-month notice, but if you do it in the first six months, you have to pay me $100 million. If you do it in the first year, you got to pay me $80 million. If you do it in the first two years, you got to pay me $50 million. Right. If you do it, you know, two and a half years in, you got to pay me $20 million. If you do it right at three years, we're good. You know, you, you try and negotiate something like that in there. Um, and, uh, you know, if you're not able to get a term like that, then it just means that, you know, and if you go ahead and sign the contract anyway, it means that everyone came to a conclusion that it's your expense to have. So, you know, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, these things are always um, funny. I'm mean, going to be more. I think what's more interesting to see in the news is that, you know, if, if, I mean, 
clearly the as those guys are saying the contract is the contract, right? Yep, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Interesting stuff. I mean, it'll be um, it'll be fun to see. So, Google Cloud has just signed a multi-year deal with Bell Canada, which is Canada's largest uh, telecommunications company. And the goal of this deal is to modernize its network and its IT infrastructure. And Bell will also be using Google AI analytics capabilities to improve its customer service situation. And, the, uh, hey, is that the last one? Like, has Rogers done a thing with, with Google yet? I don't know. I know that... Um, Google also signed a deal with TELUS, which is also in Canada, and um, and they also extended its partnership with AT. AT and T is just lining them up, knocking them down right now, because they have a partnership with AT and T that'll help companies build five G powered applications, which of course will run on the Google Cloud platform. Yeah, but then Microsoft has a deal with AT and T, and I mean, look at the gigantic thing Microsoft did with them as well. Yeah, but it's good for, I mean, the thing about Google Cloud, what seems to be nice is uh, they seem to be rolling up Canada in a very nice way. Yeah. 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 I mean, we, we need to care about Canada, I guess. I I think it's, Canada's fantastic. Yeah. I mean, it's be, uh, look at how much space there is up there. There's yeah. a lot of water. I mean, as we continue to destroy our environment and get hot down here in California and Texas, we got to move somewhere, Dan. Well, with with this deal... They now have two thirds, or they're positioned into two thirds of the Canadian market. They do not have a deal with Rogers, and does, does Google have a like data centers in Canada? I guess. Do they? I don't know. I don't know. I mean, if we go to Google Cloud right now, let me type this into the keyboard: Google Cloud, Google Cloud Canada. But I wonder if they will have a deal with Rogers at all because Rogers isn't ha so happy with Ericsson now because Ericsson had that software update that caused the outage for all the Rogers customers back in the spring. Do you remember that? Yeah, was it was it all though? Really? No, it was not all, but it was. Yeah, there was a lot of them. Yeah, it was a little. Uh, you know, it's amazing is still the fact that software updates, and <laughs> software updates, certificate changes. It's always it's literally um, the installation of a license. Uh, some type of crypto certificate or yeah. like a or update that does these things. Right. I don't know. I mean, it's, um, um, no. So, um, yeah, just looking on the Google cloud map, there's no, uh, Canada regions. Huh. You got to get up there. Well, I guess maybe they're going to ship the software and stick it inside those guys inside their own facilities or something like that. So maybe it's not a, I just get confused when it says that they're going to run things in the Google cloud, but then it's not going to be in the country. Oh, no. Here, there's one in Montreal. There you go. Well, I but put I the article that taught, that explains um, the, the outage that Rogers experienced into the show notes. They said that, um, you know, they don't, they don't say how many customers it affected. Yeah. But it sounds like it was bad. Ah, uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's people couldn't text message or make phone calls. Yeah. I mean, it's bad for how long though. You know, the, all they say is, uh, in this article, it says 
services late Monday were beginning to return to normal, but they could still be hours before it fi- fi- fully fixed a massive wireless outage it said was caused by an update from Ericsson. It will take several more hours for all customers and regions to return to full service. We'll continue to work around the clock. I remember when I was at Ericsson, um, when I first got there, my, my, the cloud group was in, um, the core network group. And I remember the, uh, Magnus Furstrom who was running it at the time. Um, I just had this funny story. Like there, there was a similar outage in Norway. I think literally, you know, he's like getting called out on Twitter by like the prime minister and had to go on television in Norway and apologize. (laughs) It's rough to be a, you know, it's really rough to be a, um, um, you know, a vendor in this space. Yeah. It's a tough racket. Yeah. And usually, you know, when there's, and the, the outages, you know, what's funny about the outages is they're not, um, they're not always, super clear i mean you know there's a lot of times when and i'm not accusing rogers of this in any way shape or form but um you know sometimes when there's outages that come from software updates it's a little bit like okay how do you how exactly do you screw that up and when you start (laughs) there's uh you know there's uh human error yeah Um, there's you know they they under invested and sort of should have had more infrastructure around than they than they could have um, they might actually have a workflow that spans like three different companies, including their own, you know, meaning you have software that comes from a vendor that then goes to a system integrator that then goes to your ops team that then goes to this and then goes to that. And, and, uh, you know, and it can be, you know, I doubt it's an issue with the software itself. I mean, it's usually, I mean, the most common thing, oddly enough is, um, um, you know, usually most of the software that's in the network requires a a license to run, um, and uh, you know, often there's there, if there's an issue with that license, or you know, the file came over but it turned out to be zero bytes, or there's an issue with the licensing server or something like that, then oddly enough, you do an update and the thing starts to boot, and then it basically refuses to work because it's not licensed. You know? Yeah. Uh, and so, uh, it can be a wide range, but, but, you know, the vendors sort of exist to, um, take on the brunt of that. And, uh, and that includes typically, um, blame, but if you actually look and you see, um, mobile network X goes down for this period of time due to, you know, like say a vendor, like an Ericsson and you look into the details, details is almost always, licensing key or crypto key um some update process spanning multiple companies so but you know i don't know i'm the kind of person that believes in personal responsibility not that i'm trying to say anything negative about rogers i mean rogers is amazing when you think about it i mean up in canada because they're they own a lot of stuff not just a mobile operator i mean they're a big deal yeah, I mean, don't they even own like uh, sports teams? You know, that's how it was when I when I visited South Korea. You know, we think of Hyundai as like a car manufacturer, but they make everything over there, and Samsung makes everything. You know, it's it's um, kind of oh. if you if you took if you took 
everything from like General Motors and Apple Computers and GE and NBC and squashed them together. That's kind of like what these companies are over there. They're they're big deals. Oh yeah. Well, and I guess Rogers in Canada is a little bit of a micro version of that. I mean, they own yeah. Rogers, Rogers Cable, Rogers Sport and Media, Rogers right. Telecom, Rogers Wireless. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, the the big the big conglomerates in you know Korea. I mean, you have of course um, Japan. A little less of this nowadays, but um, now you you have you have. Um, I mean, these companies are gigantic. I mean, somebody like Samsung and Hyundai, I mean, they do hundreds of billions a year in revenue and yeah. have people working for them. And, you know, they're in bank and insurance company, they're a manufacturer of this or that and everything else. So, um, and in the case of, like you mentioned, uh, SK, that's SK Telecom's part of a big conglomerate. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, KT, of course, is the former government uh, entity. Uh, and then, uh, you know, the other one's done by LG, which is another big conglomerate. So, but, um, but yeah. Yeah, I guess Rogers is like Canada's version of that. Right. <laughs> well, over here in the United States, um, the Biden administration, for the first yeah. time on Monday, accused the Chinese government of breaching Microsoft's email systems, which, of course, are used by all of, well, not all, but many of the world's largest companies and governments and military contractors. Uh, and this is a big deal. I mean, this is a really big deal. Uh, there's a quote here from Secretary of State Anthony J. Blinken, uh -huh. who said China's Ministry of State Security, quote, has fostered an ecosystem of criminal contract hackers who carry out both state-sponsored activities and cybercrime for their own financial gain. And all NATO members, uh, the European Union, the Coalition of Nations, uh, they stopped short of, of punishing China because they said that would create too much uh, economic issues around the whole world. Yeah. But, I mean, they're still saying that Beijing is allowing, at the very least, they're allowing hackers to operate within China and do whatever they want, even if it's not like a state-sponsored thing. But come on. I, you know, it's, um, cause like China's still old school, old school communist. Oh, very much so. Yeah. They're, they're keeping, keeping the candle, the torch going. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like that's their, that's their oh, old no, no. jam. They're, they're sitting around at night, relaxing, reading, reading linen, you know, by right. candle. <laughs> that's, that's right. <laughs> the, uh, Little gas lamp going. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, like, you know, the Microsoft case, I mean, China was exploiting a, a vulnerability that existed, um, you know, unlike like what happened with, say, the solar winds case where Russia created one. Um, right. And uh, yeah, I mean, look, the challenge is and it goes back to even the thing about software updates is, you know, it used to be that the typical reason for an outage or a security issue was because of human error. Right. And then, you know, over the last, you know, really seven or eight years, you had a flip where now the majority of things are due to criminal activity. Right. Um, and, um, you know, in, in one country's criminal activity is another country's <laughs> intelligence gathering signal. Uh -huh. Right. Sure. Sure. Um, so, um, 
you know, it's not, uh, you know, I, I mean, I, I think it's it's one of these funny things where I'm I'm sure, which I, I don't really read a lot of media in China, but I'm sure they, um, they say certain things about the United States as well. Uh, you know, but um, yeah, I mean, I you know, I, I mean, I guess the, you know, the concern, you know, which has always been somewhat related, is just a bit of even like around, um, you know, Huawei as a dominant supplier in. Uh, mobile networks right. and and then when you start having uh, more elements of mobile networks running on the public clouds does it mm. actually get more um, you know sort of surface area for attacks you know if you will um, and I don't think <clears throat> um, I don't think that those types of changes of like hey let's go run part of our packet core on Microsoft Azure somehow creates like an entirely unmanageable attack surface. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I think so. So, um, these things are <clears throat> always going to have to be dealt with. And it is true that the absolute most difficult, um, security issues to deal with is if you have highly sophisticated state sponsored actors coming after you and information that you have, you'd better be ready for that. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. That's about as, that's about as, uh, um, you know, cyber warfare as you can get. And just like any type of, uh, thing, if, if, if you're going to be attacked like that, it's going to require specific things. So, yeah. Um, but I, I don't think it's, uh, I don't think it necessarily creates, uh, you know, something, something unique, you know, in there, uh, you know, I mean, you have, <clears throat> you know, essentially examples all over the place that, you know, you have to get into sort of the details and say, okay, well, what's exactly the problem here? Okay. Well, the problem is essentially a, a well-funded, highly sophisticated organization that belongs to another government has decided to like, come figure out what's on my computer. Jeez. Okay. <laughs> uh -huh. I mean, right. It's a little bit like the, I think I was in a, a meeting one time and somebody said something like, uh, well, if the Mossad wants to Mossad you, you're going to get Mossad. <laughs> <laughs> <I just, I, laughs> just found that really funny. Uh -huh. <laughs> uh -huh. Mossad wants to Mossad you, you're going to get Mossad in. Okay. Uh, so, okay. Let's go to the next um, article. Okay. Now, this one was kind of, uh, kind of interesting. Um, there is a discussion mm. of, yes, of GSMA study called for more spectrum and wider channels. And so there's a discussion about this within the mobile industry saying uh -huh. that it will need an average of two gigahertz of mid band spectrum this decade to meet the UN's international telecommunications union data speed requirements. They say that this will also minimize environmental impact. I'm curious yeah. to know what that actually means. And it will lower consumer costs of 5g. Uh, this is based on a study of 36 cities. Yeah. Can you explain what some of this means and how does 
how does the midband spectrum work within the context of 5G? What do they mean when they're talking about uh, environmental impact? I mean, are they talking about building of towers? Are they talking about other things? Like, what does all of that mean? All the above. I, I mean, it's, it's um, you know, at the end of the day, a good spectrum policy should um, reduce the number of sites you have to build out and decrease your total deployment cost of a network. That's like that's what it should do. Mm-hmm. All the same, satisfying um, you know, everything out there. And and it's basically, um, you know, without that, you essentially have to build out denser networks and um, and have more sites uh, to provide a certain speed. Um, you know, that's on there. And it could be possible that um, it could be possible that in places where you have less people, you know, like rural coverage, for example, that you wouldn't actually have a positive business case for building the network out. I think that's the sort of core concern. I see. Um, and, uh, and the funny thing about the, um, Spectrum issues is that um, it is a um, government-owned asset class, mm-hmm. and um, by default in most countries, the people that quote-unquote use that spectrum or have that spectrum is the military. Interesting. Um, and so it's just like, I mean, for example, though, I mean, the Department of Defense in the United States has um, the most A blocks of IPv4 addresses than any other entity in the world. Um, and even when you start seeing things like, um, you know, CBRs having been opened up in the United States, that's, that's a former military band. Mm. So, um, you know, the balance ends up coming into, you know, most of the balances around spectrum utilization in a country, you know, has to do with, you know, perhaps has to do with some other commercial entities, but it basically butts up into what, that country's military consider, considers to be their degree of readiness. I mean, that's that's the whole thing in the U.S. Um, and then, look, you know, a lot of the times, uh, I mean, the GSMA is a industry organization that's funded by mobile operators, so it's going to ask for things in a very mobile. You know, I mean, it's lobbying for. Well, I don't think I can call it a lobbyist, but it's advocating for the mobile industry. And, um, if they're sitting there and saying like, well, we did a study and if you had a spectrum policy like this, then the deployment cost for everybody would be less Then yeah, they should advocate for that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Good for them. So, and I have a note here. MNOs, they might be facing regulators who want to take back the spectrum in the future. I mean, that's, there's a uh, tweet here from Dean Bublé or Bubbly. Bubbly. I think he gets he's, he's, a little fancy. Yeah, I mean, he's, he's English, so he almost definitely does Bubbly, not Bublé. Bublé. Dean Bublé <laughs> says, uh, there's another 5G spectrum land grab attempt on the cards. This is a tweet based on some highly questionable assumptions about data demand and usage. Seems to be a bit of desperate bid for MNO exclusive spectrum against a growing shift towards unlicensed six gigahertz. <laughs> and local private 5G licenses. Well, and that's a very good example of, uh, 
you know, the GSME study said this, and then I said something a bit more neutral, and then Dean went all the way out there, too, yeah, yeah. saying that, uh, correct, it is not surprising that the GSMA is advocating for um, mobile network operators. <laughs> right. So that's not surprising. Um, and, um, um, yeah, the, the interest in sort of local and private 5G and making – um, 60 gigahertz on license and that type of thing are uh, interesting uh, to people. I mean, I, I think a lot of it to me comes into um, what what type of infrastructure policy and approach do you want in a country and what's the degree of public versus public-private versus private um, execution of that policy that you want. Um, you know, I mean, we're having a very timely conversation in the United States right now about quote unquote infrastructure that ranges from roads to waterways, you know, to sort of everything else. And, uh, you know, I think what we're, you know, what we're seeing is, um, you know, just, just, we're almost seeing like little elements of what that overall conversation should be of like, mm-hmm. If you sat down and said, let's go and rationally design um, the infrastructure that's needed for the future, and then let's go have policy support that, it's fair to say that we're not currently rationally designing it, and we don't have policy that supports that rational design. That That's that's correct. And then everything else is just, tends to be uh, details around some point in time or some little issue or you know everything else, right? So, um, but, uh, but it's definitely in that. And, and I think it's, it's even related to, um, what we do from a software ecosystem standpoint, you know? So, you know, meaning like this is almost, what are we doing from a spectrum? And then it's like, what happens from a site's perspective? What happens from how we actually do all the interconnectivity and, 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 um, backhaul from that? What do our backbones look like? That's the very physical part of it. <clears throat> and then you have a similar thing where when you start looking at the entire software ecosystems that sit on there, a lot of those are increasingly open source and they're almost like quote unquote community driven. Yeah. But, but they're not really sort of pushed as like a publicly funded resource. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, there's a whole host of issues there. Bubbly also says, I think there's a good chance that uh, the capacity demand estimates in recent GSMA report on mid-band spectrum are exaggerated between 10 and 100 times. If I'm correct, that would suggest that regulators may be able to reclaim spectrum from IMT mobile use rather than providing more. You know, again, it's one of these, uh, it sort of depends. Um, keep in mind that in a lot of countries, uh, the dominant incumbent mobile operator is either formally a part of the government or it's minority government owned or it's majority mm-hmm. government. Mm-hmm. And so in fact, what you have when you have a government as an investor in a mobile network operator goes out and taps the private capital markets to raise capital, or then that capital is used to buy another government asset from another group, that nice little sort of a uh, circle, if you will, is what 
you know, governments have doing been doing an effective job of. Um, I don't see, you know, that's a, that's a, it's a good trough for the piggies, Dan. (laughs) (laughs) It is. I mean, the thing about it is that, um, you know, in some ways sort of the privatization of spectrum and the tapping of, of capital markets for infrastructure build outs and that type of thing. Um, it generates jobs. It raises capital for, it raises revenue for the government it provides something that can be taxed. A lot of benefits to that. If you sort of sat down and 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 in a, in a way, you're saying that the economy that you have in your country is one that can support private enterprise doing that. But in the absence of private enterprise doing that, then the government would need to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, and it's sort of a similar thing when you head into markets like China. I mean, all the Chinese operators are owned by China. So, um, you know, they, they charge people for plans and things like that, but like, what is, you know, what, what's the benefit of, of sort of that? You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, um, but, but I think that's the, 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 the balancing of it is it's pretty clear that, um, you always have this dynamic that somebody in a country wants to take something that the government owns and controls and monetize it while paying as little as possible. Mm -hmm. The other end of it, the government would like to monetize it to make as much as possible. Um, And, uh, you know, as long as it's all generating jobs somewhere within that spectrum and it's generating, you know, revenue for the government and it's doing that, then that that tends to be, but, but, but again, that's also assuming that things are rationally done. And that's a big assumption. It's a big assumption, yeah. but, but yeah, I mean, Dean's, Dean's, uh, um, um, Dean's a smart guy. The so. next, uh, the next piece that I have here, I think is, um, is interesting because we're, we're talking now about CBRS, okay. which is the citizens broadband radio service. This is 150 megahertz of spectrum in the 3550 to 3700 megahertz range what we would call 3.5 gigahertz to 3.7 that the united states federal commission's communications commission has designated for sharing yeah among three different tiers of users incumbent users priority access license pal users and general authorized or access gaa users but what does this mean why is this a big deal why is I mean, the FCC I FCC involved in this. I think it's a little, well, the, I mean, the FCC regulates everything having to do with spectrum. So period. they're going to, they're going to be the final decision maker on whether these really, licenses get sent out. Exactly. I mean, so they're, they're literally essentially the part of the government that productizes spectrum, if you will, and all kinds of, um, and, uh, you know, regulates it and everything else. I mean, I, I think the citizens broadband radio service is cool because it's, it's named after, citizen band radio. Right. Um, remember CB radio? Yeah. I mean, who didn't grow up with a great CB radio? I mean, you know CB I mean? and, and, uh, Morse code and all that was like huge in the seventies. Yeah. Well, and, uh, you know, that was two way radios that operates across 40 channels around 27 megahertz. Hmm. Um, and, um, it's was different than, 
uh, you know, some of the other radio service allocations, including listening to the radio mm-hmm. <laughs> and, um, and then, uh, the amateur radio service, which a lot of people call ham yeah. radio. Yeah. Um, you know, all of those were, you know, typically sort of these low single dit, digit wattage, you know, type transmitters. Um, and, uh, as you recall, like most CB radio was about, I don't know, two to two to 20 miles and stuff like that. But, but I just remember, you know, traveling around the U S in a car and, you know, with like grandparents in that car and me and my parents in this car and we're talking right. back to CB radios yeah. Doing yeah. radio with, you know, truckers every now and then. And, and, um, you know, but that was, you know, there were so many people that were able to sort of experiment with that type of thing. And so when we head into citizens broadband radio service, um, you know, the 150 megahertz of spectrum in that, in that band in particular is in some other countries is considered, um, like top tier 5g spectrum. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, and, uh, you know, there's uh, a couple interesting concepts and they're like spectrum um, access managers, you know, that actually goes and allows the use and sharing of, of, of spectrum in that. Right. Uh, and then, um, you know, it, it lets, you know, enterprises here in, in the U.S. and people have tried different ideas to like go and do effectively a um, 4G or 5G private wireless network and mm-hmm. Stuff. I mean, I, I think it's, I think, you know, CB radio and ham radio is one of these things where a lot of people are messing around with it. It's how they learned about vacuum tubes and tubes and, <laughs> you know, and then, you, you know, you have a, um, for just, literally just about every person I talked to that at one point was building their own computer or, you know, in the sort of, you know, early, early days of that, um, almost always had interest in a radio too. And CB radio and ham radio. Right. And, you know, it's you're sitting there and you're messing around with the device that goes and connects and allows you to communicate and that type of thing. I mean, it'd be somewhat cool if we had something similar for CBRS, but it was allowing that type of innovation to occur in companies that are not traditionally mobile network operators. So, I mean, I, right. I think it's, I think it's, I think it's pretty cool. Still continue to think it's pretty cool. Um, and they tend to be, um, you know, when you look at who's actually bidding for it, cause it sort of goes by country by country. And then there's sort of the sharing concepts is that, um, there's a really like interesting set of use cases and what people want to go and do with it. It's pretty cool. I mean, meaning from like universities to healthcare to, you know, John Deere to, you know, Chevron wanting to build something out around this to, you know, uh, a whole bunch of stuff. I mean, it's, it's, uh, I think it's a great initiative they've done here in the U S. So wish, wish it well. Hmm. (laughs) Not that far. You won't go that far. I mean, last September, the FCC conducted the, the first CBRS auction. And yeah. it included, like you mentioned, uh, uh, a bunch of big players, Disney, John Deere, Chevron, like you said. Mm-hmm. And they're also talking about these new opportun- opportunities, what they say, on-device with eSIM. Mm-hmm. Okay, what is that? It's a new, new one to me, eSIM. 
Well, you know when you get a like a smartphone, you put a SIM card in it, right? Right. This is the electronic version of that, right? Correct. Yeah. Yeah. So what it means is that um, um, that SIM card that you put in your phone is not programmable, and it's basically hard coded for what it is. You know, so once you put it in, it gets associated with your account. And if you take that SIM card out, you know, and you go put it in another device, it just mm-hmm. everything moves to that device. But, yeah. you know, it's all encapsulated in that physical card, and that physical card's not changing. In the case of eSIMs, it's all programmable. So so it means things like, uh, um, you know, you wouldn't like, you know, if you have a, a smartphone today, and let's say you're on T-Mobile, but you decide to switch to AT&T, you have to go to AT&T and get them a SIM card. Um, if there was an eSIM on a device, then there's just simply a software-based update of that device, and it's on a new network. So... Why wouldn't it have always been that way? Did we not have the ability to do that reliably and securely? Is that was that the main issue? No, no, just because um, um, mobile network operators don't want to make it easy to leave them. It seems, yeah, that's it. <laughs> I want to. I don't want to make it easy to switch. That's yeah. The, yeah. So and yeah, sure. There's there's technical issues, but there's technical issues in the implementation of anything. Do you right. think do you think eSIM is going to be the way of the future going forward from now on? I uh, I think for certain categories of devices, yeah. Not not across the board, not for everything. Well, I mean, smartphones are sort of done, right? I mean, done how? I mean, if you want an unlocked iPhone, go to the Apple Store and buy an unlocked iPhone. Yeah. If you don't want to pay full price for an unlocked iPhone, then you're having it subsidized by an operator. Sure. If you're having it subsidized by an operator, they're not going to let you leave without paying them back for that phone for like two or three years. Right. Um, but um, there's like, it's super easy to stick a SIM card in that. It's not like it's that difficult. And no. It's all in place. And, you know, I mean, so there isn't, when you sit around and you think about <clears throat> the ease of acquiring a smartphone, and having it just work and, you know, sliding and sort of, I mean, you, you don't really, I mean, I don't feel like there's, there's a problem to solve there. The issue becomes, well, what happens when you have your smartphone and, you know, maybe a Wi-Fi device in your home, but it's actually a fixed wireless 5G device that happens to speak Wi-Fi. And then you got your TVs and you have your devices and you have your cards. And when you start having sort of a multimodal, multi-device, multi-display, it would be helpful for those to be rationalized in some way. And a great way to rationalize them is to have all these things be connected devices that you can quote-unquote manage. That's what you get from a SIM in there. You get that right. type of management of these these devices and the ability to like lifecycle manage software on them and that type of thing. Um, and so... I think the eSIM opportunity is in all the merging devices ranging from, you know, um, you know, glasses to headsets to cars to drones to, you know, take take your, you know, the televisions, take your pick. It's basically how do we have some sort of common device management across everything that isn't a smartphone? Um, well, the easiest thing to do that is by just actually having an instruction set architecture on a chip there that gives you SIM capabilities that's programmable, 
you know, versus going in, in each and every one of those devices, building out the actual physical thing in the device that takes a SIM and then all the physical management you have to do with those SIMs. I mean, if you imagine installing a bunch of sensors in a building where each sensor's got a SIM card in it, and then five years later, you go and replace all the SIM cards and all the sensors. It sounds terrible. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. So the second you get away from a device that is not clearly owned in a one-to-one relationship with a person, where the person is physically handling the device, it's probably not a good idea to have a technology that requires physical handling. <laughs> so, eSIMs, ta-da. Easy, right? Done. Done. Future. Way of the future. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and it's, um, you know, the future is, uh, it's here now and tomorrow. <laughs> Do you have anything else you'd like to uh, add to today's show or should we wrap it up? I think we're good, Dan. I mean, it's, um, you know, we talked about standalone versus not standalone. Yeah, we covered everything. It's been a very educational. I maybe. Yeah. Perhaps for you at least. Very much for me and hopefully for the listeners. If we if the listeners would like to get in touch with us, they could just go to livingontheedge.show, click the contact link and send your thoughts, your questions. If you want to uh Jason, you're not tweeting very much, but if you want to get in touch with Jason, you can you're not on Twitter anymore. You're not let's be honest. You're not really active on Twitter. Uh, am I really active on Twitter? I mean, like I'm, if, I'm I'm at Jason H on Twitter. I mean, if you tweet at me, uh, yeah. I read. I, mean, I read, read Twitter. It. Okay, but but I, I can honestly say that uh, um, uh, Donald Trump ruined Twitter for me. I think, just, I think there are a lot of people who feel that Twitter isn't exactly what it used to be pre twenty sixteen. Now it was basically all my boomer relatives showing up to Facebook. <laughs> Facebook for me, and then it's essentially <laughs> boomer politicians showing up and ruined Twitter for me. I just couldn't. There Twitter you go. Be this fun, snarky thing that us Gen Xers would would go and hang out and do some things on and make little commentaries and do sort of this and that, and then you know, all these kids show up and all these boomers show up. It's terrible. <laughs> <laughs> well, we would appreciate all of our listeners' thoughts and feedback. So go there, send it in. You can follow Jason Jason H on Twitter. I'm at Dan Benjamin on Twitter. And uh, that's all we got for you this week. We'll be back next week. Have a good one, Jason. You too, Dan.